Episode number 94, writer, talk show host, radio personality, and stand-up comedian, Monique Marvez, is in the Springs. A, a hard laugh is a very intimate thing. I know. I wish it, I wish it was helpful. <laughs> I'm sort of the Tom Waits of comedy. I, I'm going to screw this up. I think if I would have sucked, I would have quit. just said a bunch of things I didn't understand. <laughs> and you're in radio too, right? Yeah, no, I, I just talk in front of the mic. <laughs> just show up. I have an engineer and a producer. <laughs> I don't know. I only know when they say pot you up. You know, I'm like, mm, you better watch that. <laughs> it's one of the perks of the job. Yeah. All right. I've got uh, Monique Marvez in the Springs. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome back. Yeah. Oh, I've been coming to this club. Octo- end of October will be 22 years. No kidding. So does that go back to the Jeff Valdez days? Actually, or? I was the act. I'm like Forrest Gump. I've been like all these weird places. I was here the weekend that the club changed hands. Is that right? I actually had to follow Jeff Valdez giving his tearful farewell to owning the club. Oh, my gosh. That must have been brutal. It was not fun. And, and then Larry and Lila took over. I was literally here. Uh, Lauren was, I think, 16, maybe. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I've known Lauren since he was a kid. Oh, that's great. Well, let's go back a little bit. Tell me a little bit about your history as a comedian, and then you're also a radio personality out yes. in Los Angeles. So yes. Give me a little bit of your background as far as how you ended up here. Uh, in Colorado Springs? No, just as a comedian. Oh, I, I, uh, I'm not sure how that happened. I mean, I, I'm not even kidding. I wasn't, like drama in kindergarten i'm not even i was always like the star of the play because i could memorize things so the teachers knew that if they wanted it to go well to give me the the <laughs> act with the, the part with the most lines and I, f- I fell in love with you know being on stage and having people pay attention to me and i think my superpower is you know i, I had a very unstable childhood i like to tell people that i had no margin of error my superpower is finding the less shaky, the least shaky spot in, in, a, in an earthquake room. And uh, my, uh, you'll hear it in my act. My dad was married five times, my mother four. They married each other twice. I went to four elementaries, one junior high, and four high schools. Oh, my gosh. And had uh, 40 addresses by the time I was 27. So my superpower is to, A, to find stability, and B, to read people quickly and assess. So my act has always been um, a lot of ad lib, a lot of very much made for that crowd, for that place to ingratiate myself to people. So I, I was doing comedy before I was an open micer. I would be that person at the party that would like suss everybody out and hold court. Yeah. And, uh, and then it just turned into a career. So was that just an opportunity for you to kind of ingratiate yourself with new people constantly? Yeah, absolutely. And it's an icebreaker. It's it's a, a very short route. A, a hard laugh is a very intimate thing. Uh, making someone feel good about themselves and about the world is a fast way to get into their heart. So it was just a super skill set uh, and coping mechanism. And like I tell people, it got me smacked, divorced, and fired is now paying my rent. <laughs> so now what was your first time on stage as a comedian? Do May you re- 30th, May 31st, 1990 at Coconuts in Coconut Grove, Florida. I kept a set diary for the first 10 years 
I could tell you exactly how many times I'd been on stage. And it was about 2,500. I was averaging about 250 shows a year. Oh, my gosh. I would open mic. I, sometimes I'd go to two and three places. I tried to get up a lot. And then I, I became like a super road dog and um, just worked and worked. There was a period of time for 28 months that I didn't have a home. I just went, had stuff in storage and went from gig to gig. From I gave up my home in March of 94 and didn't get another place until the summer of 96. So how did that jive with your need for creating stability in your life? I mean, that must have been a really tumultuous time for you to... Oh, yeah. Well, the, the, the thing about, about what we need is, you know, I, ha I had a girlfriend ask me the, the, the other day. She said, you don't seem very risk-averse. And I said, no, I, I guess from the outside it would appear that I am not. But I, I feel like... If you're afraid of something, then you almost by definition have to figure out why and fix it. I, I've never wanted to be enslaved by my, my fears or my, my margins, my borderline. So I have uh, recently settled down to some degree, but I, I feel like I longed for stability and companionship so much that I had to figure out the fastest route to not needing it. Hmm, that's interesting. I know. I so, wish it. I wish it was helpful. So, was the stability <laughs> <laughs> is the uh, is not. the stability and companionship to one degree or another? Did you find that on the road where there was some element of consistency and stability, and certainly companionship with fellow comedians? Were you able to? No, I don't usually like other comedians um, because I'm not like them. It's sort of like reindeer games. I'm not depressed. I, I don't hate club owners. <laughs> I don't mind of another comic panders. I don't drink, smoke, or do drugs. I'm spiritual. I'm vegetarian. You know, like, oh I'm God. really an asshole. <laughs> I've never smoked weed. You must be a nightmare on the road. I'm, when people have to share a condo with me, they either love me and become disciples because yeah. I changed their life, or they never want to see me again. I'm not judgmental. I mean, I don't care if you shoot up heroin five feet from me. I'm not even remotely judgmental. Well, you're not saying anything about me doing it right now, so I no, appreciate God, that. No, God, no. I'll hold the rig for you. I don't care. <laughs> well, this sounds like kind of a cliche question, but being kind of having that personality as a comedian, like you said, that's certainly outside of the stereotype of a, a typical stand-up comedian, certainly yeah. a road comic. Yeah. And then in addition to that, being a female in a predominantly male world. Well, yeah, I'm not even remotely whorish. I really wish that I were. <laughs> Uh, no, I do. I, I, I mean, one time, this true story, Lauren and I went to dinner, and he came back to the comedy condo with me, and he had this crazy stripper girlfriend at the time, or was breaking up with her, I don't remember, it was a long time ago, and that crazy bitch went up and down the street waiting for his car to leave, called his parents, like, t told everybody he was sleeping with me, Oh my gosh. and um, he was playing video games with the middle act. <laughs> I went to bed as soon as we were done eating dinner. <laughs> I kid you not. Yeah. You can ask him. He'll crack up laughing. Well, what, what do you attribute your longevity? I'm not self-destructive. I was going to say your longevity in this career because that there is kind of a, a disconnect relative to kind of how you're describing yourself and, again, sort of the stereotypical comedian scene. It's very abrasive, very Well, there's indulgent. a difference between a life and a lifestyle. I was never interested in the comedic lifestyle. I'm interested in the artist's life. There's a, there's a trade-off. I've had less fun than a lot of people, but my body of work speaks for itself. 
You know, I have three Showtime specials. I'm on the only non-African-American on the foxhole. Jamie Foxx handpicked me. Uh, you know, Snoop Dogg put me in his special. Again, handpicked me. I, uh, I, I'm, I, I'm sort of the Tom Waits of comedy. Yeah. You know, I don't have a... I'm not a household word, but I'm... The people who like my work are very embedded and, and engaged with, with me and with my work. And it's about the work, ultimately, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, to me, I didn't become a comedian to have the most fun. I became a comedian to influence. I became a comedian so that I could wrap truth in bacon so people would eat it and maybe the world would be a better place. So when did you come to that? If I want to have fun, I would have married money. <laughs> I would have hand-jammed some big TV executive 10 years ago when I had the chance. <laughs> so what? What? when did you... <laughs> I could, I could have. I mean, I'm pretty cute now, but 20 years ago, I was like hot. I'm getting like really sweaty, and I'm, I'm losing sorry. my train of thought. Is your son? <laughs> I'm embarrassing you. So. No. <laughs> oh golly. Um, so, going back to what you were saying about sort of your goal in the work, when did you or how did you develop that work ethic, and when did you realize that stand-up comedy was an outlet for you, not about the lifestyle, but about having a message and about having a point of view? When did that realization kind of hit that? I would say about, I started in 90, 90. I started full time and quit my day job in 93. And somewhere around 96, people started telling me, like we love when you, like it started even earlier than that, but it became very resonant. In, in like 95, 96, people were, were we, we like when you come around, we, we like what you have to say. Not you make us laugh the hardest, and they did say that. But I, it got to the point where I wasn't booking myself. I had anniversary dates. I played Louisville twice a week, the same two weeks. I played this club every year. I played Cincinnati. I had about 25 clubs where people literally waited for me and gave me gifts. I have a, a trunk in my storage unit full of gifts. I have pot holders and sunglasses and earrings. And I have a fishing lure. I have a glow-in-the-dark fishing lure. I'm not sure why. That's handy, though. You never yeah, know. Yeah, he really, he wanted me to have it in my pocket when I was, this is how long I've had it. He wanted me to have it when I went on the original Arsenio Hall show. Oh, my God. He said, I want you to pull out my lucky fishing lure in front of Arsenio. <laughs> Irony, years, years, years later, I met Arsenio in the hallway of Hermosa Beach Comedy and Magic, and I didn't want to bother him, but I wanted to take a picture. I said, excuse me, can I take a picture? And he's like, are you a comic? I'm like, oh, yeah. Uh, my, my name is Monique Marvez. And he's like, Monique Marvez, I listened to you on the Foxhole. You're awesome. I'm like your biggest fan. I had this surrealistic moment, and it's happened several times, and it happened recently, and uh, I'm going to bury the lead. I'm not going to tell you who did that until the end, so remind me. <laughs> but but uh, Arsenio Hall was, a, was aware of my work, had heard me on Sirius and you know thought I was hilarious. Yeah. He took so, a picture. So when you started doing stand-up, did you have the intent of this becoming a career or what was oh, your sure it was so right out of the gate you knew i knew I, I was the second time i was on stage a comedian you know how you're sort of a class of comedians right i was at montreal my second year as a new face with i mean i had dinner with adam sandler dave chappelle and john stewart and and i still know them that's crazy yes yeah, sarah silverman opened for me on my first road gig I gave Daniel Tosh his first break in Florida. I still see him at Marmosa. Wow. Yeah. 
I'm so, telling you, I'm like Tom Waits. I so, mean, I know everybody. So what was it about stand-up of all of the art forms and all of the opportunities for you to express yourself? Why specifically stand-up for you? What was it that... Well, I'm a writer. So all I kind of did was start performing all of the things that I'd... I would read my journals to my friends and they'd be like, you should be a stand-up. That's the most hilarious thing I've ever heard. And I wasn't writing it to be funny. It's... I'm... There's a difference between... Um, somebody told me that, that there's a difference... I'm going to screw this up between walking through a funny door and walking through a door funny. I'm, I'm inherently funny. It's a defense mechanism. I don't even try to be funny. In fact, most of the time I try not to be because men don't like funny women. But I, I, uh, I just have to kind of go with it. This is truth. I say completely inappropriate things all the time and I don't care. Yeah. I have no filter. Like when God put me together, I'm missing some big parts. <laughs> I am. I have no guile. I have no game face. You know, you can tell if I don't like you. Whoa, can you tell? Huh. It's like super obvious. Good. Well, hopefully I'm not picking anything up. No, you guys are uh, good. good. I so like far. you. Okay. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Both of you. Yeah, you're nice people. So tell me a little bit about what you're doing out in L.A. now. You're working on... Uh, Everything. I'm like the entertainment Jamaican. And you're at... Uh, <laughs> you're at no, I am. <laughs> you're at uh, KFI? I'm on KFI. I'm developing a couple of shows uh, that are, look good. I shot a pilot for a, for a panel talk show called The Spice, with uh, which with a major company with five first-generation Latinas. I mean, we're all American, but that's sort of the hook. Yeah. One of them is Lisa Guerrero, who's a big sports chick who was also on Inside Edition, where she was on Best Damn Sports Show. She's the bomb. We're like new besties since we shot the pilot. And um, I I don't even... I, I launched my own podcast, I should probably tell you this, yeah, absolutely. on uh, Connect Pal. It, the subscriptions are doing very well, and KFI allows me to support it. I mean, I call it the third hour. I do my two hours on terrestrial radio, and people follow me right over to that un, unsponsored, um, FCC, unfettered hour. Nice. And what's the format of the podcast and the, and the show, for that matter, too, the well, KFI my, show? Well, my KFI show is a, a wrap-up of the week. Okay. This week, of course, it'll be dominated by the untimely passing of, of Prince. Horrible. I was. I was crying in LAX. That's, I swear I was crying. Yeah, that was just dev I mean, devastating. And I don't want to be hypocritical. I, I can't say that I was a huge fan as I'm a I'm a monster fan. My and I gosh, saw him in concert. Awful. And he's, he was beyond. Like, he couldn't play all the instruments at once. So he had to hire people to tour with him. But during the concert, he would take the sax from the sax player, sit at the piano, grab the guitar. He played every instrument better than the people that he hired to play them. He just couldn't wow. play them all. He was a monster. He was a once-in-a-lifetime... I mean, look, when Michael Jackson d died, I'm like, boo, fucking who? You know, I mean, you're an awesome pop star, but you're also super bizarre, and I'm pretty sure a pedophile. Prince didn't bother anybody. Yeah. The guy was this just freaky little genius Jehovah Witness up there in Minneapolis just making everybody happy. You know, he, he was amazing. He was a, a, a mountain. He was yeah. a, he's a Mount Rushmore of music. So how does that translate to your show when, when an event like I'll that does happen? I'll talk about it. Yeah. I, I, and I'm free form, and, and the show's a two-hour show. I take no calls. I respond to tweets. I rarely have guests, only when they matter. I'm really happy. My idol, Diana Nyad, the distance swimmer, yeah. is going to be on with me May 6th. But it's rare that I have guests. And, you know, Prince will probably dominate an hour of my two-hour show this Saturday night. Wow. So how does, how does Diana Nyad become your idol? Because, as I said, when she hit the shore of Cuba uh, two and a half years ago, approximately, you know, 
I, I remember growing up in Miami, her swimming. She swam around uh, Manhattan when I was a kid. I thought it was Staten Island, but it was Manhattan. She corrected me when I met her. And I watched her live on her attempt. I watched her live and I was sobbing when she reached the shore. And again, I have no filter. Here I'm on terrestrial radio in the middle of the day. And I said, let me put this in terms you can understand. This bitch started swimming when I got my period. I am perimenopausal and she's still swimming. <laughs> like my entire lifetime as a woman, she has been swimming. And, and, you know, I use her name as a verb. When I say somebody's accomplished something later in life, I said, you're nigh adding it. I mean, she, how do you do that? How do you swim from Cuba in your 60s? Because it was something you didn't complete. And if you watch your documentary, The Other Shore, what impressed me the most were two things. Number one, she was attacked by jellyfish on one of her attempts. And they had to force her out of the water. Oh, my gosh. She was almost paralyzed. And she so didn't want to give it up that they had to lift her out of the water. Her doctor, who was stung by the same fish, one of her companions, almost died. And they couldn't get Diana out of the water. They had to lift her out. Number two, which explains her drive, is that she sits in her documentary, The Other Shore, on a plain stool looking straight into camera and talks about how one of her swim coach systematically, regularly, for a long period of time, molested her. And she just, unadorned, with no tears, tells a horrific story without any judgment on, on the way it played out. Like, she doesn't, oh, my parents should have protected me, or I should have stopped it, or just straight up. And, uh, and of course, in the documentary, they're like, we attempted to reach, you know, a douchebag McFeelerton, but he refused to be, you know, and you know he did it, you know. And uh, when I met her, I said, your swimming impressed me, your courage to call this guy out after so many years and sort of set the record of your heart straight blew me away. Wow. Yeah. So, <clears throat> excuse me, how does that, like Diane and I added, that drive and determination, I think certainly a lot of your peers or people who were fans of yours potentially could say the same thing about you. You've made a career out of what you do and I'm not trying to blow smoke. I'm not no, trying no, to, thank you. but I do think that that, how would you account for how you've maintained a successful career for as long as you have in thank a brutally you. tough industry? Thank you. Um, number one, I'm really good at it. I think if I would have sucked, I would have quit, but it's, it's some people are just good at certain things. I'm not good at most anything else, but I'm very good at finding the feel of a room and developing in a moment's notice what's going to work in that room. That's why I do a lot of corporates. I'm a prolific writer. Yeah. Prolific. I think the key to this business is writing. I was a writer first. And, uh, and then number two, don't believe your own press releases. Don't, don't get caught up in whether you're winning or losing. Yeah. Just keep doing it. Oh, that's great advice. All right, I've got two last questions. I think the show started, so we're running short on time. Did it really? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so having had the amount of success that you've had and certainly the, the longevity that you've had, Thank you. what are you most proud of? I never screwed anybody for a gig. Literally, figuratively? Both. Yeah. Both. I've done nothing but help other comics and promote women in particular, which is rare. And even women that have wronged me, I have chosen to chalk it up to fear 
and uh, tried to, you know, somehow build a bridge to make amends, take the hit. And, uh, and I've had opportunities to create shortcuts within my career, and I didn't take them. That's like, good. Yeah. And then the last one you told me to remind you. I was at a dinner party <laughs> a month ago with a girlfriend of mine who's a five weeks ago now who's a left-wing liberal talk show hostess. She's nationally syndicated, named Stephanie Miller. And I was on at dinner at Stephanie's, and she kept saying, you have to come to dinner, you have to come to dinner. And I said, my radio show starts at 8. I start prepping at 6. I don't want to go to a sit-down dinner and have to get up and leave. It would be embarrassing. And she said, no, you have to come. So I went to the dinner. She didn't tell me. I went to the dinner, and all of her left-wing friends were there. You know, And I say that with... You know, I'm very centrist, but I'm not by any means a right wing. But, you know, the the Reiners were there and Stephen Stills of CSNY was there. And, you know, just some really great people and other comics that I admire. And uh, so Lily Tomlin was seated across from me at the table. And I was embarrassed that I was going to have to get up in the middle of dinner to leave to go do my radio show. So I kind of excused myself and made a joke about, you know, don't give away my baklava, I'll come back for tomorrow, because that was the dessert. And uh, Lily said, where are you going? I said, I have a, a show. I have a show tonight. She said, uh, oh, you're performing? I said, yes, I'm on the radio. And she said, oh, what station? I said, KFI. And she cocked her head and she said, what's your name? I said, Monique Marvez. And she said, oh my, I listened. She jumped up and broke my friend's chair wooden chair she jumped up and knocked the chair back she said i listen all the time you're a genius i love you and i i totally taylor swifted it i was like <laughs> oh my you know gosh. hands in front of my face i right. started to cry and when i'm nervous i say completely inappropriate things so i started saying oh my god every mile i drove every crappy comedy condo every club owner that tried to touch my tits i mean oh my god and i was sobbing and she came around the, the table to hug me and she just kept saying, no, you're, you're great. You're, I'm like, I can't believe you like me. Wow. She said, like you, I love you. And I'll show you the picture. I, I just, it was one of those moments. Like if I live to be 120, well, how do you, what do you say to that? Oh my God, Monique, that's such a great story. It's every word of it true. I have the picture because she was like comforting me because I was crying and she was like, there, there, you know, like. You know, I'm so happy that I made you so happy. Yeah, yeah. First of all, she's in, as nice as the day is long. She is a amazing human being. But yeah, and, and I look terrible in the picture because I'm, I, I look terrible. I'm, I'm <laughs> sobbing. Just stunned. I'm stunned. I look like Sally Fields at the Oscars. Oh my God! Look at that. That is fantastic. Isn't that a great picture? Oh, that's a great picture. Oh, an even better story though. Yeah, you can see I was just crying my face off oh, like good an for idiot. You. Yeah. Well, was, Monique Marvez, it was an absolute pleasure. You are a, a, a lovely woman. Thank and, you. And I appreciate your time. My pleasure. And enjoy your uh, weekend here in the Springs. I'm sure I will. Alrighty. So there you have it, the lovely and talented Monique Marvez. My thanks to Monique for taking time out before her headlining weekend at Looney's to be on the show. All my best to her and definitely look forward to catching up the next time she rolls through town. My thanks to Eric and the folks at Looney's Comedy Corner for their continued support. And as always, thank you for listening to In the Springs. If you're enjoying the podcast, take a second to post a positive review on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcast media. Until next time, I'm Ryan Lowry. 
and we'll see you again right here in the Springs. Springs.